a Cleveland Jewish News production. How often do you think about this and what you went through? Ooh, B, you really be honest with you? Almost every day. Almost every day. Laura Cowan has been a fixture, actually a guiding light, at every event held in honor of Eliza Sherman over the last 10 years. She never met Eliza, didn't know her, but Laura knows what it means to be trapped in an abusive relationship and afraid for her life, like Eliza was. If I just tell you some of the stories this guy did, it's just give you chills, you know? It's been a journey. Laura's warm, easygoing personality isn't indicative of the horrors she endured. Forty years ago, Laura, a native Clevelander, was in her 20s. She moved to sunny Southern California to start a new life. She married and alongside her husband ran a bookstore and fish and chips restaurant. They had two children, Ahmed and Miriam. Everything looked pretty good and pretty smooth, but it really wasn't. Unbeknownst to Laura, her husband was illegally selling firearms and being watched by the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. One day I was coming back from to the bookstore, and the next thing I know, the place was surrounded with ATF, and boom, he was uh, apprehended and arrested, and he served five years in prison, federal time. Well, there I was with two small children, a business I knew nothing how to really run it because he was savvy with that, and I had needed help. Someone at the Nation of Islam mosque where she and her husband worshipped extended a helping hand. His name was Mansa Musa Muhammad, and Musa, as she knew him, offered to let Laura and her children, her three-year-old little boy and infant daughter, stay with him, his wife, and their children, until she could get her feet back under her. It sounded like a great idea, and I took it because I did trust them. But yeah, well, once I got into the family life with them, I started to observe a lot of things that I didn't quite agree with, especially the way he was disciplining his children. And oh boy, at that point in time, I knew I had really got myself into something Terrible. What followed were four years of living hell. We'll spare you the most horrific details. But Musa turned out to be an abusive polygamist. In all, the household victims included 19 children and three women. Laura was starved, tortured, locked in basements and garages, separated from her children, abused in every way imaginable, and endured multiple threats to her and her children's lives. Afraid to stay and afraid to leave, she was in a prison, stripped of everything but her will to survive. She had no resources, and her family was back in Cleveland, some 2,000 miles away. And uh, the only thing that helped me get out of there was me finding some piece of paper. It was like an old legal pad in in one of the boxes in the garage. And I just started writing everything that happened to us, everything to try to write down the location. I didn't even know why I was writing because I didn't know have anyone to give it to. Then one fateful day, a slip was left on Musa's door for a package addressed to Laura. To retrieve it, Laura had to travel to the post office to sign for it. Musa took her. 
Laura had her notes hidden under her dress, as always. While in line, Musa struck up a conversation with someone. He was still distracted when it was Laura's turn to talk to the clerk. Now, I kind of looked over my shoulder, and she looked too, because we kind of had eye contact, but we, we didn't talk. And I felt that she knew something was wrong. And I right in front of her, I just said, this is now or never. And I pulled this letter out, and her eyes got real big, but she didn't give me away. And I put it on the counter to slide it towards her, and she grabbed it. And the good thing she did, because he had just came over there to see what was taking so long. And she went back and got the package and came back and assigned for it, and we left. As we were going out the door, I looked back at her, and all she did was nod. The courage Laura found in that moment saved her life and 21 other lives. Early the next morning, sheriff's deputies arrived and rescued them. There are several parallels between Laura's and Eliza's traumatic and abusive experiences and what they did to document them. What's different, of course, is that Laura is here today. And every account stuck. Not one of them was dropped. I mean, from domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, rape, uh, child abuse, child endangerment, uh, oh, with so many, more torture. Torture was the biggest one. Laura got her justice. Her abuser is serving seven life sentences. Other parallels exist between Laura and Elisa's daughter, Jennifer Sherman. Jen has spent the 10 years since Elisa was murdered advocating for women in situations similar to her mother's. She's making the best of a heart-achingly bad situation. Laura did the same. She proudly calls herself a survivor turned thriver. And to this day, she continues to tell her painful story. Why? Because I know it's going to help somebody out there again. Someone else is out, out there is going to be able to be strong enough and not be weak and be able to go, this is enough. I said to myself, God, if I can get out of this situation, if you allow me to live, I would turn my life around and help others and make sure they don't go through anything that I went through. I'm Mike Butts. And I'm Sarah Shookman. You're listening to Aliza, Her Story at 10 Years, a Cleveland Jewish news podcast about Aliza Sherman's life, loss, and legacy. Welcome to Episode 4. Mike and I are both journalists who for years have reported on Aliza's story. For many, her name is associated only with tragedy. Beachwood nurse and mother of four on the verge of a disputed divorce trial, stabbed 11 times and left for dead on the sidewalk. It's been 10 years, and her case remains unsolved. In previous episodes, we've introduced you to Eliza, not the murder victim, but the compassionate and loving woman whose background too often gets left out of news coverage. We also revisited the day she was killed and took a deep dive into the ongoing investigation into her murder. As we told you at the start, beyond the headlines, deep into the details, the truth is more complicated and more interesting. As we've uncovered the layers of Eliza's story, we've shared laughs, tears, fears. If our primary goal in telling Eliza's story is to find justice, our second is to share inspiration, to inspire change, as Jen says. In this episode, we look forward. Empowerment is Eliza's legacy. 
Ten years have passed since Eliza was murdered and loved ones first rallied around the Justice for Eliza cause. But a decade later, what does Justice for Eliza look like now? I think it looks the same but a bit broader. So I think in the initial days, it was like someone needs to be arrested and held accountable. While that still is 100% true today, I think it also looks a little broader in the sense that things within the system need to be changed too. This is Jen Sherman. The fact that there are still many people who are in dangerous, violent situations And the story is the same. I mean, the specifics might change, but the story is the same. And the protections and support and resources for them have not improved. So to me, justice would be, of course, holding those accountable, but also seeing true change happen where it needs to happen. Pushing for systematic change and advocating for victims and survivors has been part of Justice for Eliza's mission from the beginning. In fact, through advocacy is how Jen and Laura Cowan met. After she returned to Cleveland 20 years ago, Laura started talking to women's groups at the Domestic Violence Center, which today is the Journey Center for Safety and Healing. She also volunteered at the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. In 2013, not long after Eliza's murder, both she and Jen attended a safety forum at the Collinwood Rec Center in Cleveland. I remember the judges were there talking on the panel and everything, and it seemed like all the victims everywhere showed up, you know. And uh, I saw Jen hold her mom's sign and her picture, you know, Aliza. It was uh, Justice 4, the number 4, and Aliza. And I wanted to know what that was about. We just felt like as a community, we did not want to have her be felt like she was alone in this. She was not by herself. Today, Laura serves as the domestic violence advocate for the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority, the agency that manages and rents affordable housing to eligible, low-income individuals and families. Every day, she receives a 24-hour log that reports the previous day's police activity related to CMHA properties. Laura works the cases flagged for domestic violence. You can get three or four on one, one 24-hour log. So in five days, you get 15 to 20 easy. And during the pandemic, it looked like that doubled. She's devoted herself, both at CMHA and throughout Northeast Ohio, trying to fill in some of the gaps in the system that Jen and Justice for Eliza are also trying to address. For example, it takes a victim seven attempts, on average, to leave an abusive relationship for good. There are a host of reasons for that, which we'll get to. But Laura has found that lack of understanding is alarmingly prevalent. They need more awareness. They need more education. They need to know what the red flags are. Sometimes when I used to talk at different high schools, the young girls would come up afterwards and they said, oh, I, you know, I didn't know all the red flags. I think I'm in that situation right now. They have no clue. They think it's because he slapped her a couple of times or whatever, that that was the love, you know, that was, he likes me or, you know, no, that's, no, that's just the beginning of more to come. Even when they know something isn't right, often a victim may not know what resources are available or where to find them. My mom, you know, she was screaming, asking for help, 
but she didn't know where do you really go to get help. I think she went to the places she thought that could help her, but wasn't getting the response she needed or the support she needed. Jen has seen firsthand examples of protections for victims falling short. There were 22 police calls over the years to Beachwood Police. Now, don't get me wrong. These situations are complex, and I know there are policies and procedures that have to be followed. But I think things need to be looked at because something has to change. Laura is also concerned about what she calls a revolving door in the criminal justice system. Sometimes a woman would call and... um, yeah, they, they'd be apprehended, but they would get back out. She would have her protection order. And it's, to them now, they're, they're feeling that it's just like a piece of paper. It's not protecting them like, like they wanted to. Laura has seen the domestic relations court system fail women, particularly when it comes to divorce. Look, well, I hate to mention names, but yeah, look at Judge Lance Mason. Lance Mason was once an Ohio State congressman and sitting Cuyahoga County judge. He's now a convicted murderer. Mason is serving a life sentence for killing his ex-wife, Aisha Fraser, in 2018. He stabbed her 59 times in front of their school-aged daughters. That gruesome attack came three years after the couple divorced, four years after he severely beat Aisha while he was driving and their daughters were in the back seat. Mason pleaded guilty to attempted felonious assault and domestic violence in that case, but served less than a year in prison. You know, Aisha, wow. (laughs) She tried to do everything right, you know, everything. And yet still, you know, system failed her big time. Second time around, this time he kills her. National statistics paint a grim picture of a problem that reaches every neighborhood in our society. Across the U.S., 25% of women, that's one in four women, experience physical violence, sexual violence, or stalking at the hands of an intimate partner. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence says the impacts are wide-ranging, physical injuries, disease, post-traumatic stress disorder, and of course, fear. In Ohio, The figure is even higher. 38% of women are affected by this form of violence. I don't know. Women are losing hope. They really are. A lot of them don't even call or report. They're scared to even go to court. They figure the court's not going to help them. They better off just move out of town and move away. Two women who are trying to keep hope alive to shine a light on the realities and lead people to better outcomes are Laura and Jen. We're fighters through and through, really are fighters. She's dedicated and so am I. She's still out there doing the work and she's not going to stop. She'll continue, you know, and uh, I can see that in her and I'm proud of her. Part of the problem begins with identifying domestic abuse. Aliza is an example. When people saw Aliza Sherman, On the outside, her sunny disposition, her warm home, her bright kids, they didn't see abuse. I think, um, you know, her clothes were clean. Um, She had access to food. She was very good at 
hiding it on the surface. Her patients would write to me and say, wow, she was the most beautiful, incredible person. She was so optimistic and had a huge smile on her face. You know, I would have never guessed it. She didn't walk around with a black eye necessarily or bruises all over her arms. You know, but sometimes the wounds that come from different types of abuse are not always very visible on the surface. You know, sometimes they run a lot deeper. While Jen characterizes Eliza as a victim of all kinds of abuse, the financial abuse continued well into her divorce from Sanford Sherman. Eliza's friend and neighbor, Karen Chait, who works in finance, saw it firsthand. What was so striking is how little insight and availability Elisa had of the financial situation. It, that's also part of the abuse, is just not, no, no visibility of financial statements, of how they were doing, how much money they had, where it was kept. You think domestic violence and you always think of the physical signs of abuse and for me it's way more than that. The emotional abuse is, is real and can be much more damaging than physical abuse. But we talk about financial abuse and uh, spiritual abuse, reproductive abuse. Michelle Riali Sorrell has made identifying abuse her life's work. She's the forensic nurse manager at Cleveland Clinic. We learn about signs and symptoms of you know, violence. We learn about um, how to do trauma-informed care and uh, helping people physically and emotionally. Identity was what drew Michelle to forensic nursing. There's a specific case that stands out in her mind, a woman who she saw in the ER years ago. Conversely, in that case, it wasn't the abuse, but the woman who was invisible. I think about her, I can see her face right now. There was a patient that came in uh, years ago, back in 2005, to the emergency department, and she was a life-threatening injury. And the officer at the time said, this is what happens when you are a prostitute and a drug addict. And I said, no, this is not what happens to you. Um, every life is valuable, and hers is not less valuable because of her addiction or disease. And I thought, I can get really angry and you know, yell about it, or I can do something about it. Since that time, Sorrell has seen more than 500 patients who have suffered at the hands of abusers. The interactions she has with a patient start like many of your own doctor's appointments, at least in the state of Ohio. The questions are straightforward, meant to standardize care across an organization. In a primary care appointment, they're often asked as a pre-screening questionnaire on a tablet. There are many points of entry into the system. In a, a 10 minute visit that I have with a patient, what can I do, right? So there are things that we do. We, we do screen patients for safety at home. And I make it part of my clinical practice when I talk to patients. I make it part of my clinical practice to ask all my patients about safety, safety at home and safety at work. Because we know that both can sometimes be stressful and unsafe. There may be a response saying yes, there may not be. So it really is, I think, planting a seed that, you know, the hospital is a safety net of the community. Trained healthcare workers know that not every patient affected by violence says, yes, I need help. But every so often, someone reaches out for that safety net. 
our forensic nurses get one-on-one -on -one time with that patient for as long as that patient wants us there. And it could be four hours, six hours, eight hours, right? So I think that we learn and really develop a relationship with them and um, can help identify what they need. And we have a tracking system. And then after the patient has been discharged, if they want us to call them back. In Cleveland Clinic's Care After Trauma Clinic, or CAT Clinic, Weekly appointments offer that hand to hold throughout a major life change. Often, survivors may not want help the first time, but Michelle believes if the resources are visible, people will know where to turn when they've reached a place of emotional and physical readiness to make a change. Yeah, there's uh, children involved, uh, animals involved, housing, uh, finances, support systems, you've been isolated, or you don't have a job to go to. or So there's so many factors that we don't understand. And then there's that whole trauma bond and that, you know, gaslighting or Stockholm syndrome, if you talk about that. There, it's not always bad, and sometimes the good is really good still. So there's a lot of confusion and really understanding that that bond is hard to break. If you were to go out on a date with someone the first time and uh, you, they, you have coffee or dinner and something and all of a sudden they punch you in the face or they scream obscenities to you, you you're not going to go back out with them. You're going to think, oh my gosh, red flag, I need to get away. So that's not how a, usually abuse starts. It starts with um, a lot of love and caring and um, your needs are being met, whether that's financial needs, emotional needs, romantic needs, gifts and safety, all of that is there. And the person that is potentially the abuser um, is building that rapport with you and then slowly picking away at some of those things about you that make you strong maybe isolating you from family or friends, or maybe running the finances and giving you what you need but not everything that you should have, um, scolding you for things that you didn't do wrong or you did do wrong. And then it's, it's just gradual over time and you don't really even know it's happening. For people that don't didn't know your mom, don't know the story, the, the, it becomes a very obvious question of like, well, why did she stay? Why, why go through 28 years? And why was she still living in that home? So I would say that that's a question that probably often comes up for individuals in similar situations. Um, and I think people probably stay for various reasons. For her, you know, she had four children. She took on the primary caretaker role for her four kids and was staying home and stepped away from her career for a lot of it. So there was the financial piece where she wanted to ensure that her children had anything and everything they may have needed. Jen says her mom, Aliza, stayed in part because she was afraid for her life. But she also stayed for the other parts of her life, a life that included children, pets, a home. Her friends, like Mary Fuhrer, say Eliza made a difficult decision seem simple. You know, she was such a good mother. She could never have left her children. Eliza is not alone. It's often hard for anyone on the outside to understand. 
Alexandria Rudin, the supervising attorney at the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, is a preeminent expert on domestic violence litigation in Ohio. She often calls on this example. Ray Rice, who had abused his wife, his girlfriend in the elevator. And there was a blog. It was a national blog. And one aspect of it absolutely hit me in a way it had never done it. And whenever I do training, I talk about that. And this woman wrote, I stayed so my children could have a father. I left so my children could have a mother. And that told me everything I need to know. Maybe you remember this national story in 2014. Ray Rice was a top NFL running back when he punched his then-fiance, Janie Palmer, in an elevator and knocked her out cold. Video of Rice dragging Palmer out of the elevator and later video of the actual strike became public and widely shared. Their story drew attention to domestic violence within the NFL. It is very rare that a victim of domestic violence leaves the first time they were abused. And that's because they have so much invested in that relationship. And, you know, they have cars, they have kids, they have houses. What are they going to do? Go home and live with mommy? They they, They don't want to do that. So they forgive and he apologizes. And the hope is that things will get better. And often it doesn't. They stay because they want that life often that they had. Not always, but when some of them realize they could be killed, that's when they get out. Rudin was working in the city's free clinic in 1979 when the state's updated domestic violence law passed. She started representing low-income women in protection orders and divorce. Over the course of However many years, almost 38, 40, 45, I have represented thousands of victims of domestic violence. Rudin's historical context on domestic violence goes back millennia, when wife-beating was correctional chastisement and when murder could be a legal form of discipline. Even once regulated, it was still this century when American courts agreed the violence could continue behind closed doors. I credit the women's movement. I credit the civil rights movement because this became an issue. And then in the early 70s, lawyers began to talk. Victims began to talk. Women began to talk amongst themselves. And they realized this is a real problem. Her four decades of practice since have made her intimately familiar with Ohio case law. She wrote the book. No, literally. Ohio Domestic Violence Law was first published in 1998 and has been updated ever since. She trains judges and law enforcement around the country in the dynamics of domestic violence. In DV, as it's sometimes called, the devil is in the details. In the multifaceted layers of people who know each other so well, many parts of their lives influence these decisions. I am there to be their partner, to be their voice, to help them learn their voice so they have a voice. And that is what I do representing uh, most of these clients. I want to give them a voice, but when they come in having no voice, I become their voice until they feel comfortable enough to voice 
their wants and desires. What, um, I don't know, kept you going through all of these years? The strength of the women who were able to get out and the need to enable many of the other women to leave an abusive home. And we were able, I was able to provide options for them. We should note, Rudin did, men are victims too. Members of the LGBTQ community face unique risk. The one thing that we've learned is domestic violence crosses all socioeconomic boundaries, all religions, all races. It does not matter. There is no wealth gap there. While she only works with clients who meet legal aid qualifications regarding income and other factors, Rudin helps a survivor decide if a protection order or divorce could help them start over. In a complicated case with assets, custody, businesses, a divorce likely starts at around $50,000. Aliza's was north of six figures. It's expensive and a long process. While Ohio court guidelines dictate even those complicated cases should be completed by the courts within 18 months, it doesn't always happen. I, I think courts are getting much better at trying to follow those guidelines. But look at lawyers. You think we only have one case? I will say one thing that I've always believed for domestic relations courts. If you're trying a case, generally you failed. Your goal is to find a way to negotiate that case. I, I find that interesting. So you have failed because if the court is deciding, you know, through through trial. Yeah, the, the court, if the court decides the case by trial, you're not going to be happy. There, he's not going to be happy. They make the decision and they only look at a microcosm of this whole life. They don't see all the other things that both good and bad. In fact, Rudin believes the court often struggles to see a victim or aggressor for what they are. They're instead influenced by the dynamics unfolding in real time. Yeah, a victim who looks petrified, who's shaking, is going to get something more from the court because they want to take care of her. But let's say you, you extricate a victim from the situation and then she has already empowered and she's saying, I don't want to give him this. I am not giving him access. As she becomes more aggressive, her likability goes down with courts. But he looks great. He cries when he's supposed to. He tries to become friends with the other lawyer. He um, tries to become friends with the judge. And he looks good. And many courts see that and say, great, you know, he looks much more engaging and happy. And Jen believes her mom, Aliza, saw that treatment. Maybe if there was more empathy and compassion in the domestic relations court throughout the process, and maybe when my mom voiced her concerns of living in a home where she felt unsafe, maybe, maybe things would be different, and maybe they'll be different for the next person if there is somebody who has that extra ounce of compassion and, and grace. This is often one of the worst, if not the worst, experiences of somebody's life. And there is very much a human factor involved and an emotional um, toll that is played on m many people involved. 
and Elisa's friend and neighbor, Karen Chait, saw that human toll. Were there ways in which you see the, the system failed Elisa? And, and if so, what were they? How, how did it fail? The legal system failed her. The um, police department failed her terribly. Women just don't have the, the, the strength to deal with a situation like this. They, they don't. They don't know where to start. But you should know. That's what we heard from experts who watch these tragedies take shape. You should know where to start for your own mother, friend, sister, yourself. A safety plan made in advance can help a survivor organize, think through, and address all the outstanding issues that make leaving a struggle. I would tell a client that. I also ask my clients to call Journey or um, you know, Jewish Family Services, talk to somebody and to really create a safety plan. If they don't know anybody, I have done those or I have called Journey with my client in the office. So that is one thing I could do. I also advise them to have a child safety plan. And it could be nothing more than, one, you need to make sure you pack all your important papers in case you have to leave, know your bank accounts, et cetera, save money if you can, but also make sure you have some type of uh, indication if things are going to look like they're getting bad, meaning you turn on your porch light and you've talked to all your neighbors that if that porch light goes on, then guess what? I'm in danger and somebody might call the police. Instead of being a bystander, you can speak up. Be prepared to be there when a friend needs you. Say, I'm here for you, and I will be, even if it takes 10 times to leave or longer. In my practice, I've lost like, I've lost now, of course, 45 years, I've lost over 22 women who were killed at different stages, you know, when they were trying to get out after they've left him for a year, sometimes after the divorce is over. He will have said two things that really would scare a survivor of violence. If you leave, you will never see your kids again. And if you leave, I am going to kill you. And if he's abused her all these years, why would she not believe both of those things? I I remember each of them. Sometimes you do everything you can and you still lose your clients. And so you just have, you know, it's the most difficult. It it is extremely difficult. And then you always think, what could I have done differently? Could I have, you know, divorced her sooner? Could I have told her, give him everything? You know, you just don't know. But I don't know that there's not much more I can say. What-ifs are haunting, unavoidable, but expected. Space is needed for them. What comes next is trying to help the next victim. I think the key is empowering people. Like, you know, knowledge is power. So if people know their resources, know where to turn, have the information or the phone number to call, they have a fighting chance of surviving.
It's the evening of March 23rd, 2023. At the beginning of this episode, we asked what justice for Eliza looks like now, 10 years after her murder. Given the tragic and horrific nature of what happened to Eliza and the decade of sorrow and frustration her loved ones have experienced, one might not expect justice to include music and dancing or really anything resembling a celebration. But Jen saw it with optimism, with opportunity. I always felt like at the 10 year, whether we had gotten justice at that point or not, I envisioned a sort of fancier get together um, just to memorialize the day. But also at that point, I really believed that we would be turning the corner in the sense of my mom's legacy and impact on the world. And so what can we do to make a difference is, is where I'm at today. I can't go back in time as much as I wish I could and and change things for my mom. But with the knowledge and the ability to look back in retrospect to the things that she went through, like what can be changed, what can be improved so that this doesn't continue to be the same for the next person. In other words, the narrative is changing. No longer will Elise's name and memory only be associated with the terrible thing that some coward did to her. Instead, the name Elisa Sherman will be a beacon of hope to those in need, a name associated with life-saving acts. What my mom said with her own voice to me was that she wanted to provide the information and the lessons that she learned the hard way oftentimes, but she wanted to share that to help other women. I owe it to her to be her voice and continue that that mission of hers. Back in March, on the eve of the 10th anniversary of her mother's murder, Jen, with help from close friends, hosted a fundraising event called Inspiring Change to mark this new chapter in Elisa's story. Jen came to me with the idea in the fall of 2022, She had the passion, the drive, a take-no-prisoners position to find help. She asked me to help with the script and host the evening. Jen's professional colleague and friend, Tracy Porter, played a key role in organizing the Inspiring Change event. More than 200 people, a sold-out crowd, attended at Canterbury Golf Club in Beechwood, Mike and I among them. Jen did not think initially that we would reach that mark. Um, I get trying to tell her that she was underestimating the response that she was going to get to this. This is Tracy. There is a very big circle of support around Jen and, at the time, Elisa. And that circle is still strong. It's still intact and everybody's still engaged in doing Elisa's work of giving back. Inspiring Change featured a rousing talk by former Cleveland Browns linebacker Frank Stams and music from motivational entertainer Alex Simon, whose song you heard earlier. 
but more importantly, inspiring change served to launch the newly formed Eliza Sherman Fund at Cleveland Clinic. Proceeds from ticket sales went to support the fund, as did raffled and auctioned items that were generously donated by friends, colleagues, and local businesses. By night's end, the initial fundraising goal of $50,000 had been surpassed. Soon, $55,000 was raised. Even more good news came about two months later, at the end of May. I was notified that the my, the Eliza Sherman Fund um, received an anonymous donation of $100,000, which I thought was really amazing. And to me, I just feel like it's just the beginning. I think I may have said to Jen at one point, this is, this is, this is what all the hard work that we did. This is what we got out of it. This is, this is what came of it. Where will the money go? In short, it'll go to saving lives. The Elisa Sherman Fund will directly support the needs of Cleveland Clinic patients and caregivers who have experienced violence. Michelle Reale Sorrell, the forensic nurse manager, explains that the fund will specifically support Cleveland Clinic's Domestic Violence Committee. She's one of the committee chairs. This collaborative has been in place since 1996 and includes 25 different disciplines. This committee has identified victims' three biggest needs. Safe housing, immediate crisis safe housing is a huge problem. Transportation to and from doctor's appointments or maybe to go to court or legal, whatever that looks like, and then phones because your phone is usually connected to someone and they might have your passwords or they might have control over that. Those are, I think, the top three things that I see pretty consistently. And we have some resources in our community, but they're just not enough to go around. The fund will also offer support in the form of gas cards, money to change locks on doors, toiletries, clothing, and groceries, all things that might help victims survive. We're, we were looking into, most recently, looking into funds to retain an attorney or to get expert opinions or advice on, on challenging situations. That financial flexibility, the ability to explore options for how to best help people, is due in large part to the fact that the Eliza Sherman Fund provides money that needn't be earmarked for specific supplies or initiatives. Unrestricted funds is... It's a treat. <laughs> Can I say that? Um, so having unrestricted funds really allows us to meet each patient where they're at and what are their unique needs. So kind of more catering to that person and their individual needs, which allows us then, I think, to have a maybe hopefully a more meaningful impact because we're not just saying go to a shelter or do this or do that. We're saying, what is it you need? How can we support you and, and, and really making it meaningful to that person? Remember the patient whose experience started Michelle down the path of forensic nursing? The patient whose abuse was dismissed by a police officer? Michelle fully believes more could have been done to help that patient if the Elisa Sherman Fund had been in place at the time. She lists all the things that could have been offered. The housing, for sure and um, a safe place to follow, um, to, to stay, and then we could follow her. I think probably getting um, our team involved, um, our social workers or our advocates, definitely clothing, food, you know, um, a phone. 
supporting or getting law enforcement involved if, if she wanted it and um, just kind of wrapping our services that we have at the clinic around her to support her, keeping her in the loop, following her, um, keep coming back for medical care so that you know that someone's here to care about you and to say, what now? What do you need next? Creating the Eliza Sherman Fund was extremely personal to Jen. The inspiration came from the things that I saw and learned from my mom's experience and wish I could have changed and if I could go back in time, do differently for, and help her with. My mom was screaming for help, but nobody heard her screams. You know, she was going to her attorney. She would call the local police department. She visited her, you know, primary care doctor, her therapist. Um, and I still just feel like we can do better as caregivers. Like we have such an incredible opportunity to help these individuals. Um, and we just need to have more awareness and more education. For caregivers, the fund will support lunch and learn sessions and other resources to help educate them on key indicators and signs of abuse. I think caregivers are very open and interested in learning it, but you know, somebody's got to speak up, somebody's got to organize it, somebody's got to recognize a need for it. Jennifer Sherman is that somebody. Throughout our interviews for this podcast, Jen's friends and family all said, with conviction, how proud her mom would be of the work she's doing with the Eliza Sherman Fund. Among them is Jen's brother, Jason Sherman, a doctor. My sister is doing an awesome job with all of this. It's, again, even for me personally and professionally, like I've seen plenty of patients who are abused or victims of neglect and things like that. So starting a fund in my mom's name to help people who are victims of domestic violence or affected by it, I mean, it's great. Again, it's just something else positive that my mom's name can be associated with. It's something she would do if she was here. So. I think it's really special. This is what justice, at least one form of justice for Eliza, looks like in 2023. It isn't the justice her loved ones have sought since 2013, the kind that means the capture and conviction of her killer. But hope remains that day will soon come. Instead, this form of justice is more aligned with Eliza's spirit. She often quoted Gandhi, be the change you wish to see in the world. Though the pain of losing Eliza will never vanish, comfort, and more importantly, purpose, can be found in bringing about the positive, life-altering change that Eliza would be working on if she were with us today. Like, even if you, you know, BCI called and said, oh, we're making an arrest right now, this is real. Like, to me, I, I'm just like, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, I think that's 10 years of waiting. Um, but I also think it's, to me, it would be wonderful because it's the very least my mom deserves. And and it also is for the best for humanity to not have a, a human or an, a monster, I should say, like that out there. Um, but it will never be good enough. It will never bring her back. It'll never give her the life and the freedom and the opportunities that she deserved to have and the happiness that she was owed so rightfully by this universe and all that she had already been through. So it will never be enough. 
it will be like one step. But there's like to me, there's so much more that needs to be done. So all we can do now is try to live our lives more like she did and focus on what we can change and improve for others, which is what she would want. Thank you for listening to Eliza, her story at 10 years. We're grateful you joined us on this journey. As Eliza's story continues to unfold, as new developments come to light in her case, Sarah and I and the entire team behind this podcast will be there to tell the story. Be sure to bookmark and visit cjn.org Sherman and cjn.org podcast for updates. If you or someone you know is affected by the issues discussed in this podcast, the Journey Center for Safety and Healing is Cuyahoga County's comprehensive domestic violence agency. Its 24-hour helpline is 216-391-HELP. That's 216-391-4357. You can also live chat with someone and access resources at journeyneo.org. Aliza, Her Story at 10 Years is produced by the Cleveland Jewish News. Executive producers are Kevin S. Edelstein and Jennifer Sherman. Today's episode was produced by Mike Butts, Amanda Kane, Deanna McKeegan, Cheryl Sadler, and me, Sarah Shookman. It was edited by Amanda Kane and Deanna McKeegan and written by Mike Butts and me. Cover art design by Bella Bendo and Jessica Simon. Our theme music is Particles by Nobu. Additional music included in this episode is by Charlie Ryan, Flint, Eleven Tales, and Michael F.K. The reward for information leading to Eliza Sherman's killer stands at $100,000, the largest reward in the history of Crime Stoppers of Cuyahoga County. Anyone with information regarding Eliza Sherman's murder should contact Crime Stoppers at 216-252-7463 or 25crime.com. That's 25crime.com. Callers can remain anonymous and are eligible to receive a cash reward if the information given leads to an arrest or grand jury indictment of a felony offender. To learn more or support the Eliza Sherman Fund, visit give.ccf.org slash Eliza Sherman Fund. To read more about Eliza's story and listen to other episodes in this series, visit cjn.org slash podcast.